Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Owen Fitzpatrick. Owen is an international bestselling author, a globetrotting psychologist, a trainer and speaker who is regarded as a leading expert on influence. He has authored or co-authored several books, including How to Take Charge of Your Life, The User's Guide to NLP, and The Charismatic Edge, The Art of Captivating and Compelling Communication. Owen, can you tell me a little about your background, the work you do, and how you got into it? Sure, yeah. I'm a a psychologist, and I studied psychology about 15 years ago. I graduated with a master's in applied psychology. And since then, I started delivering different workshops. I studied a lot of NLP, neurolinguistic programming. I got to co-author some books with the co-creator of NLP, Dr. Richard Bandler. Um, got to teach internationally around the world in that and in other areas or other topics of my expertise. And I got a TV show that I started to present about 10 years ago on, on national television in Ireland. And uh, that was for a couple of years. And that was me as a presenter and an expert. And so from there, I started delivering more and more corporate workshops, started specializing in the area of influence and storytelling and uh, communication and how uh, and leadership in terms of how to become a more effective leader, more impactful leader. And uh, yeah, and that was that was some of the main stuff. I've written a few books in, in that time, traveled to more than 100 countries. I've worked in about or spoken to audiences in about 30 countries or so and um, recent, recently um, released my uh, new podcast. So that pretty much, I think, in a in a nutshell, describes my professional career today. Awesome. And uh, well, I have some more questions. So what is the name of your podcast? It's Changing Minds with Owen Fitzpatrick. So it's a psychology-based podcast about, you know, uh, yeah, well, the first episode, for example, is on influence. There's one on this. Today, I released an episode on behavioral economics. Um, there's an episode on winning the war in your head. And then there's an interview with Dr. Richard Bandler and the guy Brian Colbert. Um, he was an author of The Happiness Habit and um, also uh, Dale Carnegie. I studied the work of Dale Carnegie. And so each, yeah, every couple of weeks I do different authors or experts where I analyze their work and start to explore some of the key learnings from it. So it's packed enough uh, podcast. It's Changing Minds Podcast. So it's changingmindspodcast.com is the website. Cool. Well, going back to some of the questions we have for you on this podcast, <laughs> um, you've mentioned NLP multiple times. Um, how do you use, well, for, for people who are not familiar with NLP, can you describe w- what it is and then talk about how you use it in your work? Sure. Uh, so NLP stands for neuro-linguistic programming. So uh, neuro obviously refers to the brain, linguistic refers to language, and programming refers to your ability to be able to reprogram the way in which you think using language. So uh, NLP to me is just about teaching people to communicate more effectively with themselves and also communicate more effectively with other people. So in many ways, using the skills of NLP, what you're doing is you're learning to change the way you think. A little bit like, I suppose, you could say some of the techniques of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, where you're you know, challenging beliefs, the similarities with NLP, but I think it, it goes deeper in so far as it helps you to be able to change the, the normal images you make, the visualizations you make in your mind, and the way that you talk to yourself, your own what we call internal dialogue and changing that. And then in terms of communicating with other people, it helps you to be able to use more effective language, ask the right questions, and to be more persuasive in creating a good relationship with them, and to be more influential as a result. So all in all, it's like 
having the ability to reprogram the way in which you think or feel and also at the same time being able to learn to impact other people more effectively as well. Can you use more specific examples of each of these things? Sure. So, for example, if you're struggling with uh, some sort of negative thoughts or let's say, for example, you look over at someone and you want to be able to talk to them, but you're scared of it, then what you do is you start to look at, well, what are you doing inside your head in order to create the fear? So typically speaking, most people will make an image of approaching that person where, you know, they walk up to the person, the person looks at them with this angry face and says, no, get away from me. Ugh. And then they run that movie inside their head while saying to themselves, they'll never say yes, they'll never say yes. And so in NLP, what you might do is you might get them to take that image and make it small, make it black and white, move it further away. So reduce the impact and intensity of what they imagine in their mind and also to get them to change the way in which they talk to themselves. So instead of saying, they'll never like me, they'll never like me. Instead, you can make that ridiculous voice like, they'll never like me, they'll never like me. You do whatever you can to take the certainty of that voice and make it ridiculous. By ridiculing the voice, it changes your association to the words, which in turn makes it so that you're less likely to believe them. And then you can replace it with, well, you never know unless you try or, you know, give it your best shot. What have you got to lose? Let's go for it. Let's just do it. Let's just see. Let's find out what we can. And by being able to change what you say to yourself, and reprogram what you say to yourself and you condition yourself to do this, what happens invariably is the next time you look over and see somebody, instead of your brain doing what it used to do, it starts to do something different, which then in turn gives you the feelings and the strategies that you need to be able to get the best results. So does a person do this like every time that voice in their head uh, sort of inhibits them or is it something that they condition on a daily basis? Like, Like what does this look like in practice? Well, in practice, it, I mean, it's it's really a case of doing it just a few times before it becomes a natural process. You see, your brain learns by association. So once you start to train your brain to do something a number of times, your brain starts to get it. And it starts to say, once I start to think this, then this is what I'm going to do. So it's, it's not something that you have to do every single day because the idea is when you practice it a few times here or there at the beginning, your brain literally starts to rewire and build new neural connections, which allow you to be able to do it naturally. So it's not that you're practicing it every day, it's that it's happening every day as a natural byproduct of the way in which you think. So I I think if you do it a few times, again, it depends on the person, it depends on the context, it depends how long they've trained themselves to think in terms of the negative thoughts. But oftentimes, you can do this in in a matter of minutes, practicing it a few times, you'll find yourself building a very, very strong foundation that then makes it easier for you to think in a more healthy way, in a more natural way, in a quicker way. You mentioned earlier, you said visualization, talk to self, and I sort of saw examples of both of those things. You said, you talked about the image getting small and moving it away or changing to black and white. Um, and then you talked about um, taking the voice and changing the tone or changing, cha- manipulating that voice in, in one's mind and then replacing it with, a different question or a different statement or some other type of language. Are there more parts to this that I'm missing or is that sort of like encapsulated to what you're trying to, to oh, describe? I mean, th- there's lots, of, well, there's lots and lots of different things you can do with regards to what goes on inside your head. They're just, you know, some examples. You can change the sequence of the language that you use. So for example, a lot of times people talk to themselves in a way that, you know, they say something negative, but they say something negative after the word but. So. A lot of times we don't just think negatively. We think we try to think positively and then we say but and then we think negatively. 
And so we go, you know, I'd like to be able to talk to them, but what if they say no? And so that's another example of something you could do. You could flip that and go, they might say no, but I'd like to talk to them. And you're training your brain to go instead of from uh, positive to negative, you're training yourself to go from negative to positive. And, and the word but tends to focus attention on what comes after it and draws attention away from what came before it. Another thing would be the questions you ask yourself. So oftentimes your questions determine where your brain is focused. So if you say to yourself, what if she says no, or what if he says no, or what if this presentation is a disaster? What if I make a fool of myself? Then your brain will paint a picture or run a movie of that happening. Whereas if you change fundamentally the question you ask yourself, then that changes what goes on inside your head. And instead, you start to run a new movie uh, or make a new image, which in turn affects your emotional state as well. And then you've got things that you can do from a physiological point of view. I mean, you know, I'm sure you know about power poses. And although some of the research is a bit dubious about the effectiveness of power poses from a neurochemical point of view, every single person listening will know that when you stand or sit or walk in a certain way, it makes you feel differently fundamentally. You start to feel emotionally different whenever you're walking in a confident posture, whenever you're, you know, standing up straight, whenever you have a big smile on your face. And so because of that, we know that if we adjust our physiology, that's in turn going to have an impact on us. The way I kind of liken it to, and, and this isn't just NLP, but it's just in general, is that there's a number of factors affecting the way in which we feel. We have our thoughts, the, the, the thoughts that we're thinking, which includes the images or movies that we make, as well as the way we talk to ourselves. And then we also have our physiology, the, our posture. But then you also have the other factors, such as, you know, your your own uh, let's say body budget at that time. So how much sleep did you get the night before? How well are you eating? Are you exercising on a regular basis? How healthy are you? All those factors do play a part in determining our emotional state. And so if you're looking to be able to get yourself into the best kind of state, so you're performing in the best possible way, then you need to look at each and every single one of those different areas so that you can adjust them and adapt to each area and make sure that you're working on them on a regular basis. Just focusing on one technique or another technique isn't always the best approach. What's the best approach is looking at it more sort of holistically in a number of different areas to make sure that you're thinking in the most optimum way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I definitely connect with it. I mean, the things that I heard you say were thoughts or talk to self, which I'm assuming are similar, like I kind of grouped those together. You talked about physiology and then you talked about, so physiology, how do you stand? How, how do we move? Um, all the dynamics around that, I'm assuming like, uh, there's a breath component to that and but all the physiological things and then you talked about body budget so you talked about sleep uh, exercise did i capture those or did i yeah, miss something yeah yeah pretty much i mean it's healthy eating it's it's basically everything you can do to make sure you're in the best possible state you know um and with, with regards to thinking yeah part of thinking is the visualization and the images or the movies that you're running but also part of thinking is the way you talk to yourself I think as well as all those, though, I think there's also a huge uh, factor, and this is something NLP looks at, but it's not alone in looking at it, and that's the whole area of um, beliefs and the beliefs that you have about yourself, the beliefs you have about other people, the beliefs you have about what might go wrong or what might happen, the beliefs you have about the way the world works. So your set of beliefs, and these uh, a belief is simply a, a, an idea that you have certainty about. So your beliefs about yourself, your beliefs about the circumstances you're in, those play a huge part in determining how you deal with whatever happens to you because you filter the world through those beliefs. So whatever beliefs that you have, you will use them and they will actually skew or redirect whatever experiences happen to you and where your attention goes on those experiences. So that's also a big part to play 
in helping people with regards to anything like NLP is to be able to help them become aware of the beliefs that they have um, and also to be able to help them to be able to adjust or change some of those, let's call them limiting beliefs. Okay. Can you use, use an example of maybe a limiting belief and how that might be adjusted? Sure. So for example, let's say, let's say you believe that you're just not a public speaker. That's not who you are and you'll never be natural at public speaking and you can't improve at it. Then if you believe that, then even if you go to a, a course on public speaking and you go to Toastmasters, it doesn't matter how much you train in it. If your belief is I'll never be good at this, then your belief is going to find ways of making sure that nothing gets in. So in our brains, we have this bias called the uh, the confirmation bias. And it's something that is extremely well known now in, 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 in the world. And it's basically this idea that we look for evidence to prove our conclusions are true and we dismiss evidence that contradict them. In other words, once you get an idea or belief in your head, you're going to start to look for any evidence that comes into your sphere of, of uh, awareness and you're going to find the evidence that supports this belief. Any evidence that comes in that challenges that particular belief and makes you doubt it, you'll then dismiss that belief and you'll keep believing what you want. So we don't really just, you know, even if you have a great experience presenting once, your mind, if you're convinced that you're not a good presenter, your mind's more likely to go, oh, well, that was the exception that proves the rule or that was just a lucky break or that was just, you know, first time look or beginner's look. And so you'll keep doubling down on your belief that says I'm not a good presenter and I'll never be able to. And so what's important from that perspective, it's, it's important to be able to get people to adjust that belief, because if you believe you can improve, if you believe that you can become a great public speaker, then that will open up your attention so that when you do start to make improvements, you'll notice them, which in turn will build your confidence and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there's a lady called Carol Dweck who wrote a book called Mindset, and she basically talks about the fact that we have two different types of mindset, fixed mindset and growth mindset. And the research shows that people who have the fixed mindset, which is I have the skills I have and I can't improve anything. I just have natural talents and that's it. Versus people who have growth mindset, which is I can learn to improve in any area if I put enough time and effort into it. People who tend to have growth mindsets tend to be much more successful than those with fixed mindsets. So at a very simple level, if people have a certain set of beliefs that become a sort of a fixed mindset about who they are, or how good communicator they are, or how attractive they are, or how effective they'll be at talking to someone or talking to an audience, then in many ways, challenging those beliefs and changing those beliefs to the point where they now are able to see it more from a growth perspective, their beliefs more orientate around a growth mindset, means that now they're much more likely to improve, they're much more likely to be able to take in the learnings and they're much more likely to make tr uh, terrific progress in being able to be a much more impactful communicator as a result. So how does somebody unwind these? Because oftentimes, well, if somebody has these has a, a set of beliefs around a particular thing, there's neural hardwiring that's sort of reinforcing these things, right? So how does somebody begin to unwind some of this stuff and shift into more of a growth mindset? Well, the first thing is to be aware of the specific beliefs themselves, because a lot of them are insidious sort of assumptions that we make about ourselves that we don't even question. So once we're aware of the different ideas that we have about ourselves, um, once we've passed that step, you'll notice there's a number of different beliefs you hold about yourself. When you do, there's a number of questions that can really help. Because if I tell you you're wrong about something, your brain's going to fight back. 
Uh, so if you say to me, you know, I'm a terrible communicator, then I'll respond to you go, no, you're not. You're a great communicator. And then your brain will double down and defend yourself and go, no, no, no. You're just saying that to make me feel good. And we'll get in an argument. But if instead I ask the question, how do you know that? Now you're forced to find evidence that supports your conclusion. And the reality is most of the time we have one piece of evidence that is kind of flimsy evidence that doesn't really back up what we think we're saying. So if you say to me, I'm a terrible communicator and I go, how do you know? And you go, well, because I wasn't able to communicate this one time. Well, then I can ask you another question. How does the fact that you weren't able to communicate well, in your opinion, that one time mean that you're a terrible communicator? Does every person that isn't able to communicate always perfectly a terrible communicator? And by challenging those particular beliefs with those questions, then your brain starts to then go in and recognize and realize that the beliefs that you had aren't well supported by the evidence there. Also, another question would be, well, who says that's true? So, you know, you might say I'm a terrible communicator and you're stating that as if it's a fact. But as soon as I say who says, the only answer you can give me will be positioning that particular idea now as an opinion of someone rather than as a fact. So you said I'm a terrible communicator and I say according to who or who says and you say, well, I say now it's just your opinion. It's no longer a fact. And once we start to do that, we start to sow seeds of doubt into these particular ideas into these particular beliefs. So people now, instead of going down that route, instead of starting to believe them, they now, now start to question them and they start to think, well, maybe. And once you get a person to the state of maybe, then you've gotten them to shift. Then you've gotten them along the right path. You've gotten them to open up their mind um, wide enough that it's possible for them to consider that maybe, just maybe, there are other possibilities involved. And again, I'm not simply saying that any of these are a case of just ask one question. I mean, that's why you have NLP sessions or you train in NLP because there is, you know, more to it than this. But at a very simple level to give you some idea, this is kind of how it works. Okay. I, I want to delve a little bit deeper into each of these. You talked about awareness and you've mentioned that multiple times. How does somebody understand or, or how does somebody become aware that a belief might be a problem? Because we all have blind spots, right? For sure. Well, I think, first of all, they have to look at the outside world. So a problem is not a problem unless you're having a problem with it. So, you know, if 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 something's a problem, but you don't even notice it, then is it really a problem? Um, because in order for you to be able to figure out what you need to change, the first things first, and that is you have to look at your life and go, is everything in my life going perfectly well and everything's great and everything's wonderful? And if an area of your life isn't going as well as you want it to, then you have to look at that and go, OK. So is there something that I'm doing or is there some negative behavior I'm engaging in? And if so, then you work back it from that and you ask yourself, okay, what's going inside my head that causes me to engage in that behavior? And if you're feeling bad, what goes inside my head or what kinds of things do I say to myself regularly that makes me feel this way? And inside of the things that you say, a lot of the things that you say will be in fact the ingredients of the beliefs that you have. So if I'm beating myself up, for example, and I say, Oh my God, that was stupid, Owen. You're such an idiot. You're terrible at this, blah, blah, blah. And I start insulting myself. Inside of that, some beliefs will be revealed. So I might still insult myself with the same old thing over and over and over again. And that will give me some insight in terms of some of the negative beliefs or limiting beliefs that I have. Now, what's important about the limiting beliefs is this. A limiting belief isn't always negative. So for example, if I say I will never be able to swim, then that's a limiting belief. If I say I can swim when I actually can't. That's also a limiting belief. So 
either positive or negative can be a non-useful belief. Because if I say I can't swim, even though I can't, and I jump into the water, I'm going to drown. But if I can say, if I say I'll never be able to swim, then once again, that'll stop me from ever trying. But if instead I recognize, well, I can learn to be able to swim, well, that's a useful belief. So as you start to listen to what you say to yourself when you're building negative thoughts or what you say to yourself or the kinds of ideas in your head or the way in which you're thinking before you engage in a non-useful or negative behavior, that'll start to teach you or make you become aware of some of the beliefs or some of the ideas that you have about who you are and about yourself and about whatever it is that you're doing or trying to do. And that in turn will be giving you what you need to know in order for you to be able to make changes. And then it's about taking those and again, running through the process of challenging those beliefs. Well, I, I was thinking about how we might understand or like how on a personal life, I might think I understand something, even if I have a better understanding than a lot of other people around something that becomes a positive limiting belief. And this sort of conversations I've had around this idea of sort of like a Zen beginner's mind. You, you talked about questions and you used the example, I mean, you just used a bunch of examples around awareness, but you used a specific example, how do you know that? And as a person is going back and questioning their belief, what are some additional questions they might be able to use in order to poke holes in that belief? Okay, so the two, two I've said so far would be, well, how do you know that's true? And another one would be, well, who says? Um, another one would be, well, is that always true? Every single time, in every single case, is that always true? Because oftentimes one of the mistakes that we make from a belief perspective is we, we don't think specifically, we think generally. So so it's no, it's no longer, you know, she said no. It turns into I'm terrible with women. We tend to jump to these generalized conclusions because it's part of the way in which our brain works. So we learn by generalization. We learn how doors work. We learn how chairs work. We learn how tables work. We learn how computers work. And they're pretty much all similar in terms of the way we do it. So our brain is always trying to generalize. And because of that, it tends to generalize some of the non-useful things. So we get one rejection. We get one no. The, the person says one no to our product that we're trying to sell. And instantly, oh, nobody wants to buy it. Everybody hates it. We tend to generalize. So instead, you can go, is that always true? Or everybody hates it. Nobody wants to buy it. There's no one that will go out with you. And when you start to, you know, point out that and start to challenge that generalization, before you know it, necessarily, people start to recognize, well, hang on a second, that's not fair to say. Uh, another thing that you can do is you can, you know, whenever people talk about, I can't do this or I'll never be able to do that, asking the question, well, what stops you? Because when what stops you gets them to start to identify specifically what are all the things between where they are and where they want to go. So they go, I'll never be able to do this. I'll never be able to talk to this audience. Well, what stops you? Well, I'm terrified of them. So if you were confident with them, would you be able to talk to them? Now, all of a sudden, you're breaking down these limiting ideas of I can't or I'll never be able to. And you're getting them to recognize that there is a strategy that they will be able to use to overcome it. And it's a strategy that they'll have to use bit by bit. But it is possible. That's what you're doing. And once again, if someone says, I'll never be able to talk to an audience and I say you will, then necessarily the person's not going to go, oh, really? I will? Oh, brilliant. Instead, they're going to argue going, no, you don't understand, etc. But when I ask them a question, I'm getting them to change their mind. And that's the key here is that the questions get the other person to change their mind. You're not changing their mind. They're changing their mind because nobody likes for someone else to be changing their mind. Nobody else, nobody likes to be convinced by other people. They like to come to their own conclusions. We have this need, this idea that says, I want to have 
my own control. I want to feel like I'm in charge of my thinking. I don't want anyone to convince me of anything. We don't like to be sold to, but we do like to buy. So these questions get the other person to make up their own mind. And by you asking the questions, they get to be the one that decide, actually, I've changed my mind on that, which is exactly what you're looking for. Does that help? Yeah, it sort of made me giggle a little bit. I was a long time ago, I was a student body president of a college and I had to sit down with the head of my university um, once a week and just talk to him about what what was going on. And, and, he's, and he would mentor me in the sessions. And I remember talking about like an agenda that I had and he goes, he goes, what you want to do is you want to ask uh, the people you have to influence a question. He goes, for example, if I wanted an international center on campus and I just said, hey, I want this international center, it'd be hard to get all these different stakeholders invested in that. Like they're, they're, a lot of them will instinctively sort of cling to the way things are now and the way resources are sort of split up now. So he goes, instead what I'll do is I'll get all the people I think I need to influence together and I'll say, like, I need to ask you guys a question I've been sort of been thinking about, like, what would it mean to have more in- international students on campus? And then they would answer that question. He said, because then I ask another question, like, how would that change the, the sort of look and feel? Like, how would that enhance? So he'd ask these questions and he goes, then pretty soon it becomes their idea and, and then they're the ones who are pushing it. <laughs> so I like that sounds very similar. Am I in the right ballpark? Yeah. Uh, completely. And, 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 and in this case, you're, I mean, you're literally leading them down the road to take ownership. And, you know, we all know that one of the keys to motivation, you know, Daniel Pink said it in his, his book, Drive, one of the most important aspects of motivation is autonomy. And so when people have autonomy, they're motivated. When people have ownership, they're motivated. If you can give the other person, or in this case, a great example of the person giving the group a feeling that it was their idea and they're going with it and they're coming up with it, then all of a sudden, before you know it, they're pushing it harder than you. And if you can get the other person pushing harder than you, well, that's a huge win. So it's a great example. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. He goes, uh, you let him take ownership of it and invest in it. And he goes, and then you just get out of the way. <laughs> or kind of lead them a little bit, but he's like, mostly just get, them out of the, get out of the way. But I mean, I think a lot of this stuff is really quite fascinating. Um, for your NLP work, I mean, is it, I mean, you said like basically you lead, the goal is to lead to the idea of maybe, right? Because then when um, we begin to question sort of these beliefs, now we have enough space in order to actually make movement on them. Are there things that I'm missing or are there things that you want to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you see, NLP is an incredible tool, but it's it wouldn't be the only one that I use. So so I'm tra- just in terms of separating it out, you know, when I go in and I'm working with different people, uh, my job, well, you know, I worked as a therapist for years, right? So I'd work with people with severe depression, panic attacks, fears, phobias, and I work with thousands of people that had all all sorts of issues like that. And, it, you know, if you want if you want a real test for working with people with, you know, limiting beliefs, that's the test. Because people are depressed, they don't think negatively, they believe negatively. They have a massive amount of extremely strong negative beliefs that limit them in many ways, and they don't really open themselves up to any other way of thinking. Because again, the emotion is so strong that it associates itself with a collective, as I suppose, array of beliefs in that context. And so with all of this sort of stuff, what you're doing is you're slowly but surely getting them to start to doubt these uh, big, you know, ge- generalizations and these negative beliefs about what's not possible for them and who they are and who they aren't. And then once that's there, then, you know, as you're talking to them, as you're having conversations with them through the examples you give or the stories you tell, through the suggestions you give them, through, you know, getting them to recognize that they have a set sense of control over the way in which they think, 
then they can start to decide, well, what are my goals? What do I want to achieve? And then they can start to move forward towards a better future, towards a them where they take charge, where they are confident, where they're saying, I'm going to give it the best go that I can. And even if I get rejected, I'm going to take that on the chin, learn from it, and I'm going to move forward. And to me, that's where a lot of the the big shifts come. It's not in the, you know, a technique here or a technique there. It's in the overall attitude. In many ways, NLP is sort of like an attitude. And it's an attitude of being able to recognize that you have the ability to take charge over the way in which you think. You have the ability to change your perspective on the world. And when you do, it'll change the way you feel. And your change in feelings will determine how you behave in that context. And so to me, that's the key with NLP is that, you know, it's about learning to change your beliefs. It's about learning to change your natural thinking patterns, like your visualization, the way you talk to yourself, you know, you adjust your physiology. It's about starting to build a normal natural reaction so that when you do communicate with others, you're in the best possible state. And because it's about influencing yourself, the same questions that you can ask yourself and you can challenge yourself with, you can also challenge other people with which is why NLP is also such a great coaching or therapeutic tool as well. So again, in a nutshell, I suppose that would be, that would be some of the most important things to consider. And that'll be kind of the essence of NLP, if that makes sense. You talked about some other tools. Can you explore some of those with us? You mean as opposed to NLP, like as well as that? Yeah. You're saying other than you do NLP, that's part of your tool set, but there's other tools that you use. For sure. So it really depends on the context. But like, for example, the use of storytelling is huge at the moment. There's a guy called Robert McKee um, and his colleague Tom Gerace, who wrote a book called Storynomics. And this is a sort of a field which is very big at the moment. And it's basically story applied to business. So how you use stories to improve marketing, to improve leadership and, and that kind of thing. But stories can also help people. I've done a lot of work with storytelling, when you, the stories that you tell yourself and learning about the way in which an awful lot of times when we face problems, when we face challenges, we, tell to te we tend to tell ourselves the victim story. And so what I like to do is one of the most effective uh, techniques or strategies out there is to teach people to start to recognize the stories they tell themselves. So who are they in the story? Because a lot of times they'll be the victim or sometimes the monster and teaching them to be able to change from the victim to the monster. So if they see themselves as I'm just not good with women or I'm not I'm just not good with men or I'm just not good at this. Then it's getting them to recognize this story that they're telling themselves, which is full of the beliefs that we talked about earlier. But when it's in a story form, then the question is, well, in a story, how would that main character if that main character was you and was a victim, how would they turn around that, that around and how would they become the hero of their own story? So who is the villain? Who is the monster? And what does this victim need to learn in order for the victim to transform into a hero? So that's a very, very effective tool, one that I, I would use quite a lot. And it's, it's incredible when you get people to become aware of the narratives and the stories they tell themselves, not just about one area of their life, but in many different areas, then you can help them to take charge and to rewrite their own story, which is really, really cool. There's also a lot of great stuff from positive psychology. There's a lot of research out there about happiness and meaning and whether or not life is about happiness or it's about meaning. And it really goes back and connects with some of the old philosophical traditions. There's things like stoicism, which is quite good in terms of helping people not get too attached to things. There's mindfulness, obviously, which is a really useful way of staying in the present and not allowing yourself to go off on a negative thought. The skills of emotional intelligence which again, all of these are related and all these connect, but emotional intelligence would be recognizing and being more aware of yourself, recognizing how to manage yourself, 
you know, using some of the techniques that we've talked about and, and, and possibly others. There is um, a social awareness and noticing other people, reading body language and all those great skills. Um, and also then there's relationship management. So how to communicate more effectively with people and building good relationships, how to negotiate better, how to make other people feel good in your presence and how to build the right kinds of character traits. Um, and then there's also things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which again is similar in challenging your overall, uh, you know, beliefs or what they call attributions as in the, the, the qualities that you attribute to the reasoning for your situation. So in other words, some people who tend to think negatively tend to attribute the reason for bad events that happen to them are permanent, are pervasive and are personal. So they think if something bad happens, it's because of me. It'll always be like this. And it's like this in every area of my life. Whereas someone who is more optimistic will say, well, if something bad happens, it's temporary. It's to do with someone else. And it's just in this specific context. So I don't have to worry about it. So there's all sorts of different tools, you know, that and I've just named a few, but they're all useful in different ways to help people to be able to change the way they think and also to improve their communication as well. Well, the process of changing the way they think changed the way they feel, as you said. You talked about the narrative, uh, the idea of restructuring a narrative. What does that work look like when you do that with somebody? Well, it depends on the context. But let's say, for example, um, I'm working with a leader. So a lot of times I'll do some work with different companies or different executives doing exec coaching or whatever. And so in many ways, let's say they've recently got promoted, but they don't see themselves as an effective leader. They see themselves as you know, a manager, but not necessarily a leader. They can't see themselves as a CEO or a COO. And so what I'll be doing is I'll exp I'll start to explore that with them and explore, right, when you think about yourself and you think about the story of your life, um, how do you see this? So what do you mean when you say a CEO? What story do you tell yourself about what a CEO is or a COO is? What story do you tell yourself about what a manager is? What is the difference between the two? So it's really exploratory. It's really starting to ask questions to try to understand as best I can how they're building the story of themselves in that situation. Because if the story that they tell themselves about themselves is different to the reality, then what's going to happen is either they're going to change reality to fit the story they tell themselves about themselves or vice versa. And so oftentimes this can happen in the wrong direction. So in other words, people will start to sabotage themselves because inside they don't believe they deserve whatever you know goodness happens. A lot of times we see that with regards to lottery winners, that lottery winners haven't changed the story they tell themselves about who they are. So ultimately speaking, the story is of them as the underdog, them as the, the person that um, is always broke and always poor and always making end meet. And when that happens, then even if you do win money, money then you've, you're, you're almost getting you know, rewarded for spending that money or rewarded for getting rid of that money, which isn't obviously a healthy uh, position to be in. And so in those contexts, you're again trying to understand the stories what that they tell themselves and how they see themselves. And you don't say to, you know, you know, don't generally say to someone, what's the story you tell yourself? Instead, you'd ask, well, how do you see yourself and what has been your life so far? And tell me about your experience. And as they do, they'll start to share Again, the sequence of events and how they see themselves in that situation. And also, if you ask if you ask them how do they deal with adversity or give a specific example of when something went wrong, how do they deal with that? Again, you can tell a lot by, you know, even the language that they use. So they might use more passive language um, rather than active language. So they might say it happened to me. And that tends to suggest that they're 
more in terms of a victim story as opposed to if they said, and I did this and I dealt with this and I had to figure out what I was going to do, then that suggests that they're thinking more in terms of a more useful way. So again, you can tell a lot when you listen to people and when you hear them describe what's going on. I don't just listen for the content of what the problem is. I listen for how they present that problem through the stories that they tell. And based upon that, I can help them not just by working on the content of what the problem is, but I help them to change the very narrative or story structure that they use so that they can see themselves having a more happy ever after, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, I mean, I definitely connected when you talked about the idea of how they'll either change their realities around them to fit that that belief or the other uh, the other what was the other one uh they either change their reality to fit the belief or they change the belief to fit the reality so if, if you want to look at it a different way cognitive dissonance is a term in psychology to describe um the the the, the tension in your mind when your identity or um and your behavior are out of alignment with each other and sometimes it's when two different behaviors are out of alignment with each other but so what this basically means is let's say for example i believe that i'm uh i believe that i'm a uh, unfit person and I'm just that type of person I'm overweight and that's who I always am and then I start to go to a gym because I you know I, I get told that I have to exercise on a new year's resolution I start going to the gym I'm not going to last at the gym and the reason I'm not going to last at the gym is because my identity says that I'm an overweight fat person and that's part of who I am and so my brain is going you're fat and my behavior is going you're becoming thin and so one of them, there's tension there because we, we look to our behaviors to confirm who we are and we need a sense of certainty about who we are. And so unless you adjust that belief about yourself being overweight, unless you adjust that and, and you stop seeing yourself as the fat person, you're going to sabotage your efforts to get healthy. And so one of the most important things if you want to get fit, if you want to get healthy, is you need to change how you think, you think of yourself. You need to start to see yourself as the kind of person who is healthy and fit. You need to see yourself as a slimmer person because when you do, you're much more likely to find that the behavior you engage in will, will stay consistent to that. Otherwise, it can change in that way. And in fact, uh, back in the Korean War, they used to brainwash people like this. What they would do is they would get people to say, uh, you know, the Koreans will get the Americans to say a few small negative things about America. And as they stacked it up, they then presented it back and they started to convince the Americans that actually the that they themselves didn't actually believe in or like America uh, because they heard what words they'd said all read back to them in a big, long sort of, you know, page, uh, which which again, they, they built up over time. So they might say one bad sentence about America each day and the Koreans would read them back the entire party sentences and the Americans would start to go, well, I must not like America if I said all those bad things, which I did say. And so it was one effective strategy that they used to start to change the very way that the Americans thought about their own home country. And that's, again, a very important and effective way of being able to change things. So from a story point of view, if the story you tell yourself, in other words, your identity or the way in which you think about yourself is different to the reality or what you're doing on the outside, you're either going to shift or change that reality or change that behavior, the way you're acting to fit your identity, or you're going to adapt your identity and, and fit that with the behavior. And one of those is a useful direction to go in and the other isn't. And so it's important that people go in the most useful direction. I have one question about this and like you use the lottery example and my instinct is there's definitely a belief system around that. But I also think that there's 
a set of skills that are connected to how somebody would set up systems that generate wealth that some people just don't don't have or they haven't learned that they inherit a bunch of money or they win a bunch of money and then they scale up their old systems because they don't know how to build a, a business that where you have an input and the output's higher than uh, than the input and it's a sustainable system. They just they have sort of like a consumer mentality and so they, they blow the money because they scale up sort of the habits that they have. Do you see a connection here or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's definitely one. I, I think that the, the issue is, is that if I, if, if, I, if I have a narrative or a story about myself as a certain type of person and all of a sudden money comes into my life, then it's, it's very easy for me to think to myself, well, the money, you know, I, I've got to enjoy this money and I, you know, I've got to uh, do what I see people who are rich doing, which is I see them on, let's say, on Instagram spending all this money. And there's a, like, like you said, there's a gap in terms of not just from a belief point of view, but there's also a skill set. But I'm never even going to get to that skill set unless I accept, first of all, that I can see myself as that, you know, wealthy or rich person. So to me, the first step is being able to change the narrative or change the story so that you can see I can be that kind of wealthy person. And then after that, then I can go, right, well, in order to be that wealthy person, me imagining it isn't good enough because all these people that are wealthy and successful, uh, there's people that, you know, blow all the money that they have very quickly and there's people who don't. So what I need to do is I need to spend some time learning what these people who tend to keep money and tend to, you know, make that money more um, worthwhile and, and last longer, I need to figure out what those people are doing, you know, uh, because if you're in a totally different circumstance, you've got to adapt to that circumstance. Believing that you can adapt to that circumstance is the first step, though. And so once you change that story, then the next step goes, right, I believe I can be a wealthy person and I believe I can be happy and wealthy. But I also know that I've never experienced this before and I've not been trained and I've not gone to school where I've studied how to manage uh, an immense amount of wealth all at once. So now I have to figure out, well, how do I do that? And then that's the second piece where they start to then start to learn how to invest, how to be clever with their money, how to set up the systems and processes that they need to be able to take that money and use it in the most effective way, how much to save, how much to invest, how to keep it secure, and to be able to ensure that they're doing the kinds of things that enable them to be able to scale up to a new lifestyle, slowly but surely, but deliberately, rather than allowing their excitement or the bombardment of, you know, a massive flood of emotion of bliss to, to, to dictate what they decide to do. Because again, it's not just their emotions. Now, all of a sudden, everyone else looks at them differently. And that's one of the most dangerous things when you get money is that you want to impress others or you want to, you know, give everything to everybody or you confuse people who are pretending to be your friend as an actual friend because you want to believe it. So there's a whole host of different factors. But at a very simple level, the first part to me is to, you know, change the story about yourself and see yourself as someone who deserves it and who can and is uh, a wealthy person. Because once you do that, then you can start to learn the skills and, that you need. And then you can start to hopefully work on and making sure that your decisions are as shrewd as possible. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, 
it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, I, mean, I definitely see what you're saying. It's funny. I, I I would actually approach the questions, the question part a little different. Not not necessarily whether one deserves, um, but like, does somebody need to live extravagantly just because they have money? I think about this guy who uh, was my little brother's godmother's father, who was a Mexican man, didn't speak English, and uh, owned a little bakery, and he bought this. Uh, he bought a house, paid it off paid the bakery off, bought another house, took the rent from the first house, paid off. Like when the guy guy got into his seventies, he owned like 22 houses and like 20 something apartment complexes and still didn't speak any English. And he had sort of a different association with wealth. But I definitely, like I definitely resonate with this idea uh, that there has to be a sort of a shift in mindset and a shift in, in behavior. And so like that was sort of what I was digging for. And so I definitely can, I connect. You talked about positive psychology, happiness versus meaning. What is that? So, so basically, there's back in you know many many years ago, uh, back in sort of ancient Greece, they they would talk about two kind of theories about why 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 we should live or what's the point in life, right? And so, some of the philosophers uh, would talk about you know life is for feeling good, and other philosophers would say, well, no, life is for doing good. And so, one became known as a sort of a life is just about feeling happy, and the other is became Life is about, you know, finding meaning in your life and living virtuous type life. And so positive psychology is kind of like the, the 21st century um, approach to this, uh, you know, never ending question. But rather than just being philosophical, it's it's the first area where we start to, to study happiness and to study meaning and to ask the question, well, what can we do in order for us to feel happier? What can we do for us to find meaning? And so most of the research in psychology in the 20th century was focused on problems. So why, are, why is a person depressed? Uh, why is a person uh, suffer from fear? Why does a person have a phobia? Why is a person panicking, etc.? Why is a person schizophrenic? They were the kind of questions that researchers would ask in the, uh, in the, in the 20th century. And positive psychology was looking at, right, well, what, man, what creates happiness? What do people need to do in order to live happier lives? And most of the suggestions of positive psychology seems to be that we need a combination of both. So it's not just that life is just about finding meaning and it's not just about life is about happiness, but it's about finding meaning and being as happy as you possibly can. And so what they did was they started to do an awful lot of research as to what are the things that you can do to make you feel happier on a more regular basis? And what are the things that you can do to help you to find meaning? And so if you look, there's a guy called Viktor Frankl who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he talks about his own form of, you know, um, therapy called which he calls a logotherapy, which is basically finding meaning in the events of your life. So uh, Viktor Frankl was a concentration camp survivor who had his 
his uh, wife and um, unborn baby killed in the camp. Uh, I think his brother and his father were killed as well. And he retained a, a healthy attitude. And he was asked afterwards, how did you retain a healthy attitude when all that stuff was going on? And he said that the, the Germans could take away everything from us, every freedom, except for what he called the last of the human freedoms. And he said that's a person's own ability to choose their own attitude in any given set of circumstances. And so he really talked about the importance of finding meaning in the suffering, because if you have to go through it anyway, then finding some way that that suffering actually helps you in your life, that it actually does something for you. And so positive psychology looks at, you know, techniques for happiness. So some examples would be, you know, if you uh, write down in a journal every morning, uh, three things, tr three, three specific things that you have to feel grateful for, that's been shown to be correlated with increasing your happiness is one of the single best things that you can do to improve your happiness. And, you know, spending time meditating and uh, spending time in nature and all that sort of stuff has again been shown to make you happier as a person. There's some types of happiness which are more about setting goals and achieving it, which makes you feel good in one way. But then there's other types of happiness about appreciating what's going on and, and more instead of about achievement, more about acceptance. So again, practicing accepting what is and staying in the moment and, and being in the now and those kind of things. And that tends to lead to happiness. And then in terms of meaning, beginning to start to explore and investigate um, what meaning that you give to your own life and finding some sort of meaning in the work that you do. So when you work at whatever it is that you do, you start to appreciate it for what it is. You start to ask yourself, what is the impact I'm having uh, every single day? And you start to notice the difference that you're making in the world. And you start to, to take whatever negative events happen to you and try to find, well, what's the meaning of this? And how can this make me a happier or better person as a result? And so by combining the search for happiness with the search for uh, meaningfulness, then what you're doing is you're starting to uh, create a more useful way of thinking, a more useful and happier existence, uh, an existence where you are not just experiencing positive feelings, but you feel that you're able to live a good life, making a real positive difference to the world as well. That's the kind of essence of positive psychology, I would, I would say. I have a question. So like, I definitely can see the benefit. Somebody's in a bad place. How do you move them into a better place? Is there like a healthy place like where someone feels negative emotions, right? Like um, somebody feels fear or anxiety or sadness, like, is this something that always needs to be changed or is this something that it's okay to sit with and let pass? Like what do you see where I'm going with this? I totally do. Yeah. Now, and, and here's the thing. I think, I think it depends who you ask, but I'll give you my, my thoughts, my opinion. So I, I recently wrote a book with uh, a colleague of mine, Brian Colbert, and it's called uh, the, the cynical optimists. And it's based upon this idea that says that one of the most effective attitudes or ways of thinking that we need to have is what we call cynical optimism. And that is the ability to be cynical about life, the ability to recognize that sometimes life is just shit and sometimes terrible things happen and sometimes your heart is broken and sometimes people leave you and sometimes people die and sometimes bad shit happens, you lose your job. And turning around from that and trying to you know, force yourself to be happy just makes things worse because now not only is your life going to pieces, but now you're feeling guilty about the fact that you're feeling bad about it. So I think it's okay for you to, you know, to, to experience sadness. It's okay for you to feel scared. It's okay for you to feel any negative emotion. And beating yourself up about it is stupid. Instead, feel the bad, bad feeling. Experience it. And just know that it doesn't mean that this is always going to be the way it is. 
It doesn't mean that the ideas or beliefs that you're thinking at that moment are true. And as well as letting yourself feel those bad feelings, it's important to be cynical about what you're thinking in those moments. Because if you're feeling really shit, if you're feeling really lonely, if your girlfriend leaves you or your boyfriend leaves you, you're not going to be thinking, oh, I'm going to meet someone tomorrow. You're going to be thinking, no one, I'll be alone forever. And nobody will ever love me anymore. I'm unlovable. And so it's about accepting and being okay with the fact that you're feeling shit. And, you know, sometimes you need to be around your buddies and you need to be around your friends. You need to fucking eat ice cream if that's what you need to do. But in that moment, you can also recognize all this shit that I'm saying to myself about, oh, you know, I'm going to be alone forever and nobody loves me. And that's all bollocks. That's all crap that you're telling yourself in that moment because of the negative feelings you're feeling. It's not true. It's not right. And if you do ask the questions like, how do you know that's true? Who says that's true? You know, is that true in every situation in this one specific case? You recognize and you call yourself on this sort of stuff. And once you do that, then you're able to be optimistic. So it's the cynical optimism, the ability to be optimistic about the future and going, right, well, what if things do work out? What can I do? Uh, what would it be like if things turned around in the future? So you, you don't have to always be happy. And I think if you try to be, it's exhausting and it's never going to work out well. But if you let yourself feel the shit and accept that sometimes life is shit, but sometimes great things happen then you can start to look forward and imagine how great things will be in the future. And that's kind of what I feel and, uh, you know, the, the attitude that I have. And sometimes people argue and go, no, you can always change your state. So you need to focus on changing your state. But sometimes I'm like, no, sometimes you got to give yourself a break and just be OK with things not being OK and look forward to the future, recognizing that everything will become OK. And the other thing I'd say about it is. If you ignore negative thoughts or negative feelings or negative events all the time, then there's no way for you to build up resilience. It's like if you go to the gym, you build muscle and you build muscle by heavy weights and the heavy weights break down the muscles so it can build it back up. This is what a guy called Taleb calls anti-fragility. And if you want to become anti-fragile, if you want to become stronger um, as a result of, of adversity, then you need to experience some sort of adversity and hiding yourself away. Like some of the ideas these days about, you know, always stay in safe spaces. Don't allow anyone to say anything that might be crude offensive. The problem with that is, is that the more that we ignore these things, the more we go down a rabbit hole that makes us super sensitive to everything. And it means that no one's allowed to say anything. And then we react in this way. And what's really important is that you become stronger because when you're stronger, when you're more anti-fragile, when you're more resilient, when you're able to deal with negative things that happen, because they will happen. No matter if you hide yourself away from the world, bad things are still going to happen. And it's not that we ignore them. It's that we accept them. We feel the pain and we recognize that there is meaning in that pain and that pain will help us grow stronger. And to me, that's the key. And that's what I believe is a much more useful approach um, than, than this whole uh, let's stay positive all the time, you know. Yeah, I mean, I definitely hear you. you. You talked about fragility, right? So let's say somebody is in a fragile state right now, right? Like they've they've experienced either a major trauma or a series of traumas or a major trauma and ser a series of traumas, and they're trying to walk themselves back. What are the best strategies for doing that? I mean, I hear people talk about like desensitization towards fear, and I hear about CBT, and I hear like, what what do you think are the best strategies for? Well, I think, first of all, recognizing what they're going through, there's this idea called post-traumatic uh, post growth. So, you know, you probably heard of post-traumatic stress disorder and all this sort of stuff about how trauma tends to, you know, negatively affect, um, you know, a lot of people. But there's often, there's also this idea of post-traumatic growth that some people do naturally. 
But a lot of times it's in your beliefs about what happens whenever something negative happens. So if you believe when something negative happens, that's going to cause this and this and this, then often it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So to me, it starts with you recognizing that, you know, there, there is a possibility that something might go wrong. And what you do is you predict if this goes wrong, then what am I going to do? If this goes wrong, then what does that mean? And so you plan ahead of time, not just for succeeding, but you also plan ahead of time for something bad happening. And you go, if that happens, then what I'm going to do? So again, in a, in a flirting example or in a communication example from that point of view, if you look over at somebody and you know that it's possible for you to go over and to get a result, if you just imagine yourself getting a result, then if they do say no, will you be ready for that? Will that, you know, or will that like totally make you think, oh God, um, I didn't expect that. Oh, maybe I was wrong and start to doubt yourself. Whereas instead you imagine it going well, but you prepare for if it doesn't. So you imagine it going well, but then you go, right, well, if they don't uh, give me the response I want, then what am I going to do? Then what will that mean to me? So to me, it's about predicting ahead of time what might go wrong. And if it goes wrong, figuring out what are you going to make that mean? So what meaning are you going to give to that? Does that mean you're unlovable? Or does that mean that they've got, you know, a terrible judgment and, you know, they were they were extremely stupid for saying no? And then once you figured out a more useful or empowering meaning, then you go, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond if that happens? And again, you mentally rehearse planning to respond to that in that situation. And so even if it's a big, challenging, you know, um, situation that, you know, is, is much worse than just hearing a no, once again, predicting ahead of time, accepting it's a possibility that things might go wrong. So what meaning are you going to give it? And once it happens, what are you going to do? And once you're ready for it, then it kind of gives you this sense of freedom. It gives you the sense of certainty that says, no matter what, I'm going to be okay. No matter what, I'm going to react in, in the most effective way. All is going to be okay. Um, instead of going, I hope this works because if it doesn't, I'm totally screwed. A couple of things came up. I thought about a friend of mine who, um, growing up, his parents died. His whole family died in a very short period of time and he was sort of all alone. And he ended up moving in with his football coach and his football coach basically came on as a role of like his father, right? Like he wouldn't have been able to predict uh, that his parents were going to die in a car crash. I think that's how they died. Um, and where I'm getting at is like, we can't predict every catastrophe that's going to happen. And if we went through life thinking about every catastrophe that might happen, like it would put us in a pretty fragile state. Um, so in a situation where, or I have another of a client of mine who, he goes on a date, comes back and he says, you know, I was on that date and she went to touch me and I must have flinched or something because she goes, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, well, what do you think happened? He goes, well, like my mom used to hit me a lot and, and uh, I get a little skittish when people try to touch me. And so in that case, like the trauma already has occurred, right? And so how does he, like what, what is the process for sort of walking him back to normality? Well, I think in many ways, unfortunately, you know, something like those examples, you know, require counseling or therapy because, you know, it's there, there's not really a technique that you can go, OK, I just want you to, you know, imagine this and say these words and, and change what you're saying to yourself. And then you're grand, you know, like when, when you're dealing with with, with uh, something horrific, like your parents dying in a car crash. I mean, that's like. That, that shit that, you know, you don't get over uh, uh, that quickly and, and it takes a while and you'll never really get over it, actually. You'll get through it. 
And so what that's about is about them being able to air what's going on, to talk, to have someone that there is that listens to them and that is there for them and then helps them to be able to find some sort of meaning in that. And, you know, in it, let's say in a in an imaginary therapy session, if I'm working with someone who went through that, then I might get them to be talking to their parents and get them to imagine that they're speaking with their parents and that their parents are um, telling them how much they love, uh, you know, him and and giving them, you know, the advice for the future and telling them, look, you can't tell what, you know, you can't always control what happens in life, but we believe this about you and we know that you can turn this around and that kind of thing. And that's the kind of stuff that you would go into if you were doing therapy or whatever. Um, and then in terms of the, you know, the, the client that is struggling with the, 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 the other thing, then again, what you have to do is potentially get them to do some sort of healing. You know, there's also to inner child work where they're working on how they felt at the time and they start to uncover that and they start to imagine themselves in that situation. And um, they start to ask themselves the pain of what their mother was experiencing so that they recognize that their mother is behaving in a very, very horrific way, uh, but is doing so because of their own, you know, messed upness. So in other words, it's nothing to do with them because part of the problem is that a lot of times it's not just that we suffer abuse. It's that we feel that we deserve it in some way or we, 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 we we've caused it or we're to blame. And it's about getting them away from that. So there's no real simple answer. You know, there's as a therapist, I would have lots to, to, to do with them. But um, it really is um, not something that is any quick fix for something like that. But the, the most important thing, I suppose, if you're coaching someone or if you're just even having a conversation with a friend is to really get them to start to to see that whatever they've been through, that doesn't have to determine their future. You don't dismiss it. You know, you 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 express your love and, and your support and you make them feel like you truly care and you're always there to listen to them, but that you remind them of the strength that they've showed to get through it, the strength that they've shown, you know, to be able to move forward, the strength that they've shown in their life. And you get them to recognize that they don't have to allow any event or any experience, no matter how tragic, to determine their destiny. They get to choose that. And if someone like, you know, I think that book, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, is a great, it's a great gift to give to people because it gives them that in essence, that understanding that says you are not the product of all your circumstances, no matter how horrific they are. You have a capacity to take to take charge. You have a capacity to decide how your future is going to turn out. And I think that's probably a, a really good strategy to go. If, if, if you can't do therapy with someone, you know, giving them the gift of that book and, you know, encouraging them to realize that you're not taking away from how tragic or how awful or how serious or how intense what they've been through is, but you're telling them that, you know, they can get through it and you, you know, you're, you believe in them um, and you believe in their ability to take control of their, their future because they can't change their past. Yeah. I mean, our bodies heal, our brains heal, right? Like we bear scars, but um, our wounds heal. And you've talked about so many really cool ideas. Uh, you, you mentioned stoicism and you also talked about mindfulness a little bit. Like, um, one of my experiences is like people who are stoic are drawn to stoicism <laughs> um, and, and that could like actually start to become a problem because then they become maybe more disconnected versus somebody who maybe um, like needs to detach a little bit more uh, should be attracted to stoicism. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> do you see where I'm going? <laughs> yeah, I think, well, it, unfortunately, I think in many cases, uh, a lot of times the people that are attracted to these things are the people that already kind of do them. 
you know, so like, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd see people and I'm going more than ever. They need to learn like the people who, who, who love communication skills and love learning about communication. A lot of them tend to be pretty good communicators. It's the people that like, you're thinking to yourself, Oh dear God, please learn how to communicate. And they've like no interest whatsoever. They don't even, it doesn't even come on the radar. So yeah, with the stoicism, again, it's people who tend to have that. It's almost instead of being something they want to learn to manage their state, sometimes people get into it because it kind of justifies, it, it gives them a theory to based upon what they kind of prefer to do. And it kind of means, oh, I don't have to empathize. Oh, I don't have to connect with people. Oh, I don't have, whereas that's not the point to stoicism. Um, it's, you know, it's more of a, a, a sort of a useful way of thinking that helps you not get too, you know, emotional or too over the top about things. But oftentimes, as you said, you know, you have people that are already kind of thinking quite, you know, philosophically, as they call it, about it. Um, and then they just use this as going, oh, I'm a stoic, um, <laughs> you know, because, it, you know, it makes them feel better. You mentioned mindfulness. What are the benefits that you notice with mindfulness practice? I mean, the, the research suggests that, you know, one of the biggest benefits, uh, neurologically speaking, is it actually calms your natural reaction. So your natural reaction to stress uh, you tend to react in a lot healthier ways and you tend not to be as, you know, sensitive and as reactive uh, to stressful events than you are normally if you practice meditation or mindfulness on a regular basis. Mindfulness itself, I mean, there's three aspects or three different, I suppose, three different types of techniques. You've got techniques where you observe your body. So you ground yourself, which is really, really good whenever you want to, you know, physically um, relax and physically feel connected with the world and uh, at that moment start to calm yourself. Then there's um, uh, observing the reality, the present, so staying in the moment. What what do you see in the world? What do you hear in the world? What do you feel physically? How do your, you know, how do your clothes feel on your skin? How, how you know, what is the, the, the different things that is going on in, in the outside world for you? And that helps you to stay in the moment whenever you need to. And that kind of gives you a break, almost an escape. It like relaxes you. It's a nice meditation. And then the third is what you do whenever your negative thoughts are creeping in. So whenever something happens and you're thinking negatively, this is observing your mind. So you observe your thoughts and you disconnect from the negative thoughts. So you simply observe them and going, right now I'm feeling this. Right now I'm saying this to myself. So you start to observe what you're saying to yourself and how you're saying it to yourself. And by doing that, what you're doing is you're you're getting a little bit more distant from these thoughts so you're less likely to take them personally and less likely to feel bad as a result of them which is a much more useful way so to me the the benefits of mindfulness is that you tend to be a lot more relaxed you tend to be able to react uh, in a better way or smarter way um, and you tend to be a lot um, better able to be able to deal with whatever happens when it happens rather than allowing your feelings to dictate it. So in many ways, you could look at the brain. So the brain mainly, you could argue the brain has sort of like the prefrontal cortex, which is the front of your brain. And then you've got the limbic system, which is the you know more center of your brain, which is the more part of your brain responsible for emotions. And so when you're mindful, what you're kind of doing is you're increasing the blood flow to the frontal cortex. In other words, allowing you to take more control over how you feel as opposed to letting your feelings dictate uh, what to do. So mindfulness, I think the biggest thing is it stops you from being subject to your own feelings. It stops you from being commanded by your emotions. And instead, it gives you the ability to take charge so that you can dictate and decide how you're going to react to situations. That's what, that's what I'd say the main things of mindfulness would be. 
I think that observe body, observe reality, and observe mind is like the best explanation anyone's ever given me for uh, a breakdown of mindfulness. There are a few other things that you mentioned, and I know we're going closer towards the end, but um, you talked about social awareness, and you talked about relationship management. Can you talk about both of those? Sure. So social awareness is your ability to understand what's going on in the world around you. So to be able to read cues. Now, most of us are pretty good at reading cues because, you know, you, you get to read cues as you you uh, as you grow up. Uh, you start to notice, you know, obviously head nods, you know, yes is uh, up and down nod and no is a shake of the head left to right. Well, in most cultures, not in India and some other places like that. And I think Hungary or Bulgaria or something. So um, in most cultures, we know basic cues like that. We also read body language. And so social awareness is your ability to tell what's going on, you know, when you walk into a room with different people. Now, the mistake people make when they're reading body language and they're reading all that is they think, oh, their eyes, like in NLP, for example, the myth is, oh, their eyes went up to the right. That means they're lying. Their eyes went up to the left. That means they're telling the truth. It's not what it means. Uh, their eyes going up to the left indicates they're more than lightly remembering and up to the right indicates they're creating an image. But a lot of times we create memories and a lot of times we remember things that uh, we're projecting out into the future. So the biggest mistake we make is that we jump to conclusions about those things. We say a person's closed arms, that means they're not listening and all that sort of stuff. Instead, what we need to do is look for clusters of body language. So notice a number of things that seem to suggest that this is going on. And based upon that, that gives you some indication as to what's happening. The other thing we need to do from a social awareness point of view is notice congruence and incongruence. So notice what are the words coming out of their mouth? And the words coming out of their mouth might be, this is a great opportunity. Now, you then have to look at, well, what are they doing with their body language? Do they look like it's a great opportunity? Are they shaking their head no when they're saying it's a great opportunity? What's going on there? And then you've got to listen to their tone of voice. When their tone of voice, is their tone of voice excited? Or is their tone of voice completely and totally neutral or bored? Again, that's going to indicate whether or not they believe what they're saying. And then you've got to look at their face um, and how they look. And notice those things. So if you look at a cluster of all that information, you ask yourself, is it congruent? That gives you an indication as to whether or not what they're saying is legit or whether it's not. And then also you've got to be able to look at, well, what are their default states? So, you know, normally, you know, if you go to if you have some extrovert, then they might reveal very easily what's going on. But other people might be more introverted. So it's much more subtle. So if you go to Scandinavia, you're going to have to work a lot harder to read their body language than if you look at people, for example, in New York, let's say. If you're playing poker, people are designed or deliberately trying to hide what they're thinking or feeling. So that can really improve your ability to read people better. So that's all, all about um, social awareness. Relationship management is then once you have the information about um, what's going on with other people and whether or not people are upset, whether they're happy, whether they're in a good mood, whether they like you, whether they don't, then relationship management is based upon the information you're getting. How can you build a better relationship with them? So how can you uh, what, what kinds of communication would work for them? Um, are they the kind of people that like to be left alone? Are they the kind of people that like to be included? You know, what kind of communication do you need to give them that will make them happy? What motivates them? What do they want? Do they want you know, to improve their status? They're, do they want more of a sense of autonomy? Do they want to be able to be respected or looked up to? Do they want recognition? Do they like to be praised a lot that that's what's important? Or are they the kind of people that as soon as you start to kiss their arse, they, they feel negative towards you? You have to start to figure out what that works for them and then start to make sure that you're making a concrete effort to build and improve that relationship. And it's also about follow through. So, you know, when you meet someone, 
and then you know you you follow up as soon as you followed up and let's say you remember something about them you're building and improving that relationship so dale carnegie's ideas of how to win friends and influence people are obviously helpful uh, tips and suggestions on starting the process of building the relationship and again stephen covey's stuff to do it you know think win-win and uh you know uh seek first to understand then to be understood all of those basic ideas that we've learned many many years ago are really useful in this but also what's useful is recognizing that building a relationship and not just like a romantic relationship but any business or even friendship relationship requires effort it requires that you put in the time and you put in the effort and that you communicate on a regular basis and you will allow yourself to be you so the authentic real you but you connect with them in a way that resonates. So you show different sides of yourself to people um, and you let and, and you see the different sides in them and you allow yourself to work at that connection so that you're not just pretending to be nice. You're actively going, how can I build a more effective relationship with this person? And I think that's one of the things when I go in and deliver sales workshops or training in that area is that a lot of times I'm trying to get them to build better relationships with their clients and get their clients to think to, to themselves, I wanna do business with this person, not just I wanna buy that product or that service. And once you start to think like that, then you start to build more effective relationships and then you start to uh, get a lot more results because oftentimes now when all products are c competing and you know it's, it's hard to beat everyone else on price and it's hard to beat everyone else on availability, the one thing that you can do is you can improve the relationship you have because people still need to buy from people they trust and they like. And that's what an effective relationship is. I mean, it's awesome. You mentioned a bunch of stuff, uh, resources for relationship management. And I really like that sort of framework of thinking about like, how do you build that, that relationship that you really want? Um, it sort of services both people. When you talked about social awareness, like what are some resources that you recommend for somebody who feels like they need to work on this? Well, there's lots of um, there's lots of uh, books on sort of body language and all that sort of stuff. There's I think Joe Navarro has a book on on, on that as well. Um, and there's some different courses that they do on body language and that kind of thing. Um, to me, there's a few things. First of all, what I always say is, you know, you can get an awful lot by watching movies. You really can, and and you can get an awful lot by watching people communicate effectively. So what I like to do, um, in terms of um, you know, study is sometimes what I'll do is I'll, you know, turn the sound down as I watch a particular film or a particular TV series. And I'll start to just watch the body language and start to develop an awareness of it, start to notice it, uh, uh, what's going on. And then I might even play back that particular piece of it. So I can go, right. What I thought was going on versus what actually went on. And what it's doing is it's training me to start to be aware more of the body language that I'm noticing. Cause the, the reality is, is that we're pretty good at being able to guess. I think in, intuitively, most of us are good at guessing what certain behaviors mean, but we don't always pay attention because we're too busy thinking about what we're saying or what the other person is saying or what we want the person to be saying or what we want to be saying. So instead, when you actually start to just focus on the body language, then it starts to train yourself to become more aware of it. And you start to notice a lot more of what's going on. The other thing which I've been looking about is all the traveling. So when I travel an awful lot of the countries I go to, most of the people in those countries don't speak English. So therefore, when I go there, a massive amount of communication is forced through body language, both my body language and theirs. So it's made me acutely aware of body language and the different cultural types of body language in lots of different places. So it, 
it really enhances and gives me some nuances on exactly what's going on for a person, exactly what they're trying to say or communicate to me in that moment. So from that point of view, it's really, really useful um, to, to, do, to, to do those kind of things. Um, so again, watching you know some of the movies and TV series with you know, like the sound down is great. Watching people you know communicate at your work and try to figure out and just be a people watcher. One of my favorite pastimes you know when I'm in a foreign country is go to a coffee shop, sit down and just watch people and you know just absorb and start to notice people and try to figure out you know when two people are talking, figure out their relationship and all that. And you never know, necessarily know if you're right. But you, what you're doing is you're training yourself to pay attention to it. And the more you pay attention to it, the more you'll start to uh, start to get better at it. The last tool you mentioned was CBT. How do you use CBT in your work? Well, CBT would be similar to the stuff we talked about earlier with beliefs. Cognitive behavioral therapy would be, um, again, challenging the attributions that people have. So whenever, like I said earlier, someone says it's always like this and all that, that, that kind of thing, that I would get them to be aware that the what they're attributing, the reasons they're attributing to what's going on aren't necessarily true. So it's about getting them to sort of fact check um, what's going on and fact check what's happening. Um, like there's a there's a particular technique. It's not actually from CBT, but it's perfectly it's perfect in the way it communicates one of the best lessons from uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. And that is a lady called Annie Duke wrote a book called um, Thinking in Bets. And one of the strategies she uses is she goes, if you're ever trying to challenge a belief, ask yourself the question, how much money would I bet that that's true? So, for example, let's say I said to you, uh, Uruguay is the first team in the world to win the soccer World Cup. If you say to me, how much are you willing to bet? Instantly, if I'm not 100 percent sure of that, I'm now going to go, oh, shit, hang on. Uh, did they? Um, wait, who was the first? And I start to doubt and start to check to see whether or not I'm 100% behind that, that I know it's 100% true. And so that question, how much do you want to bet, is a really powerful question to force people into verifying and double checking that particular idea. And so what if we started to ask ourselves that question? So when we start to think about some of the negative thoughts that we have, and we ask ourselves the question, how much would I bet, how much money would I bet that that's definitely true? So if you said, um, nobody likes me. How much money would you bet that that's true? I'll never be able to do this. How much money would you bet that that's true? She hates me. How much money that would I bet that that's true? And as soon as you ask that question, instantly you'll be going, well, no, I probably wouldn't put any money, which in turn makes you recognize that actually you're probably full of shit in that context. That's, that's awesome. Um, I, Mike had a couple of questions he wanted me to ask you. One was around charisma. Like if somebody wants to develop charisma, what do you think are the essential elements and how does somebody develop uh, into more captivating, compelling communicator? Sure. Well, just to plug my book, I've written a book called The Charismatic Edge. So I hope you don't mind me plugging that. Yeah, do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, The Charismatic Edge. So basically my theory. So I started studying charisma when I was still in, um, uh, I was still in, uh, well, school, actually, I started. And then I did a thesis on the gurus. My master's thesis was on the guru factor which largely was looking at charisma. And then I started off doing an art of charisma course and charisma boot camps and charisma mastery and all that sort of stuff, different courses. And so for me, all the research I looked at was went like this, right? So a lot of people think charisma is something that some people have or other people don't. But there's a few problems with that. First of all, babies are naturally charismatic. If a baby walks into a room, a toddler walks into the room, 
they're just completely and totally engaging. You know, there's no such thing as a boring baby. All babies tend to be great like that. And so I looked at that and I go, well, if that's something that some people have and others don't, then how do you explain that? And then also you see some comedians that tend to be way more charismatic after a couple of years as they work on their craft. And then you also see situations where in some situations you're way more charismatic than you are in others. So all of those got me to realize, well, hang on a second, something's not right here. And so to me, charisma is both internal and external. There's an internal component and an external component. And the way I like to describe it is, is that charisma is about being you more and being more you. And so by being you more, what I mean by that is that you're more authentic. In other words, you're not held back by the fears that we develop as we get older. You're allowing yourself to fully be yourself, to express who you truly are to others, to let people see the real you, to express and be open to your vulnerability, to overcome the things that stop us from being ourselves, which are the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of embarrassment, the fear of judgment. And once you overcome those fears, then you can let other people see the real you. And you can let people see the great you, all the wonderful qualities of you, as well as the things that aren't perfect. And when you're that authentic, then that carries weight. That carries a strong sense that other people feel comfortable around you because you're being so fully real and so fully yourselves and you're not faking it and pretending that you're some bullshit figure that you're not. Then the other factor is that it's about expressivity. So as well as authenticity, the inner, the external or the outer world is about you being more expressive. And that means the charismatic behavior or the charismatic skills that you're communicating, you're learning how to use your voice more effectively, you're learning how to walk in a more effective way using more body language, learning how to tell stories in a more captivating way, learning how to be able to influence people powerfully, uh, again, not just verbally, uh, not just non-verbally or paraverbally, but also with the language that you use, you're using more impactful language and starting to make it so that you can express that you in a really powerful and engaging way. And to me, charisma is about both of those things. It's not just about the expressivity, because when people are fake it, you can kind of feel that. And it's not just about authenticity, because if you don't express yourself, no one really knows or understands you fully. Instead, it's about being authentic and expressive. And if you do that, you can certainly develop your natural charisma to the point where you're making much more of an impact to more people. Sometimes in our classes, we see see men they start they're feeling certain things and they have trouble expressing them how does a person learn to become more expressive well i think first of all the reason that people don't express it comes down to the authenticity piece so i actually think when 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 people when men have feelings that they find difficult to express they don't find it difficult to express because they necessarily just don't know how to it's also that they're holding themselves back from expressing it because they're scared of being judged as a result so the way I like to do it is to explore those fears, to explore, right, what are you afraid of? What is the worst case scenario if you show this side of yourself? What is it about showing this kind of form of, uh, people would say, weakness that immediately makes you scared? What does that mean for you? And what's the worst case scenario? And if you drill down just even a little bit, most people will do it because they're terrified of being rejected. They're terrified of being abandoned. They're terrified of being judged. When you get them to recognize that rejection is okay, so like when people come to your courses, I'm sure one of the things you're training people is rejection is grand because the more rejected you get, the more information you have. And as long as you don't give a shit about it, then it's actually a really, really useful thing to get because it gives you information. And so if you have this attitude and when you train people with that attitude, now all of a sudden they've changed the meaning of what rejection means. Therefore, they're no longer afraid of it. And so what I'm trying to do with people is I'm trying to get them to the point that, let's say men, 
tend to accept that if they do something or if they express themselves or talk about their feelings or express this, if they look ridiculous, that's okay. It's okay to look ridiculous. It's okay to make a bit of a fool of yourself from time to time. It's okay to fuck up or to fail. It's okay to be rejected. Once they recognize it's okay, then all of a sudden it takes a huge uh, weight from their shoulders and they can go, I can be a bit fucking mad. I could be a bit crazy. I could be a bit ridiculous and it's okay. I don't have to be that way all the time, but I also don't have to avoid it. I can embrace it. And when they do that, then they're okay with expressing it. And then it's just a case of teaching them the, the other aspects of that, which is getting them to work with using their voice in different ways and start to, you know, adjust the way in which they have facial expression. A lot of the workshops that I do around storytelling tend to help quite a lot with that because I'm getting people to, to not tell a story, but show a story. So they've got to act out the different parts. Um, and so some of the acting sort of skills come in handy from that point of view as well. So I would say key is the, the, the more the authenticity stuff and the fears that are holding them back. When they act it out, can you describe what that means? Are you doing psychodrama or are you just, is it something uh, else? No, 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 I, w I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. So when I say acting out whatever, you know, stories uh, that they tell. So what I would be doing is I'd be getting them to do stories, maybe per perhaps getting them to do nonverbal stories where they can't actually tell people anything. So they have to, uh, you know, physically show what's going on. Not like just charades, but actually telling a story with those kind of things. And it forces them to use their body. It forces them to use their face. It forces them to use their gestures, which might be things that they're not ordinarily using. And then you get them to incorporate then some of the words as well. And then you get them to play the different characters. And then you get them to start to express different accents. And even if their fucking accents are terrible, they get them to the point where they're playing around with those accents and they're starting to develop the awareness that says, I don't have to just be, you know, staccato. I just, I don't have to just tell people this in a monotone going, so I went into this thing and then this happened and then this happened. Instead, they can start to build more variety into it and they can be more interesting to listen to as a result of that. So I don't, I don't get too heavy, but what I am interested in is what are the fears and, you know, let, let's explore them. What's the worst case scenario? And then start to extract, well, what does that mean? What does that mean about you? Because people aren't afraid of being rejected because they're rejected. They're afraid of being rejected because what it might mean about them. And that, that's the error in their thinking. And so what I want to do is help them to change that error so they no longer associate that meaning, so they no longer feel the same fears, so they can break through it, and they no longer have to hold themselves back. They can let themselves express themselves uh, in the most effective way. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I definitely got it. Uh, that's awesome. I, Mike had one more question I wanted me to ask you. For those who are listening don't know Mike is Mike's our producer. How can people master the art of influence and persuasion, have greater impact, and become more of a leader in their social circle? So I think uh, there, there's three aspects to influence persuasion. Obviously, like I normally teach training courses on influence and persuasion, you know, that might last anything from one to five days or whatever. But the key, the basic keys are this. Uh, every influence scenario involves, let's say, three main things, and that is the source of the message, the audience, and the message itself. So you have to learn to be able to position yourself as the most persuasive person you can be. That means you need to establish credibility. That means you need to demonstrate, look, you know what you're talking about. You're an expert in this or you understand things well. Um, you need to also be, demonstrate trustworthy. So you're not going to bullshit people. You're going to tell the truth. You're authentic. You're real. You're you. And then third of all, it's likability. So, you know, you're the kind of person that people will like, that they connect with, that's similar to them. Therefore, as a result of that, because you're credible, because you're trustworthy, and because you're likable, they're going, right, I can deal with this person, I can believe this person, this person is someone I can listen to. 
Second part is the audience. And that means trying to understand what is the audience like? What is the audience not like? What does the audience want? What's their goal? What are their fears? What are their values? What's most important to them? What's not important to them? And the more that you understand about the audience, the more you understand about what they already think before going into the situation, uh, whatever they believe, the more likely you are to be able to overcome whatever objections they might have and to be able to influence from that point of view. And then the message is you want to be able to communicate your message both logically and emotionally. So logically, how can you rationally explain to them why this is a great decision? Um, how can you give them the evidence, which we're pretty naturally good at anyway, but then emotionally, how can you make them feel good about the decision? What stories can you tell? How can you get them into a good frame of mind? How can you make them feel good about this idea? And again, that's the emotional side of persuasion. The one other thing I'd say is that the biggest impediment to changing people's minds and the biggest impediments to influence would be our um the, the strategy that we tend to use most often is that we tend to argue with people throwing evidence their way. And as we already explored with confirmation bias earlier, uh, when we were talking about it earlier, if I if, if you tell me this political party is, you know, uh, full of idiots and full of bad people and I love that political party, then all of the stuff that you're saying to me, I dismiss and I give you evidence as to why they're brilliant and why they're amazing and why they're wonderful. And so instead, what's a really good idea is to really understand what does the other person believe and find common ground to start with. Find whatever it is that they've said, connect with what they've said, agree with what they've said, whatever you do genuinely agree with, and then slowly but surely lead them towards what you're thinking. Slowly but surely start asking questions that get them to open up their way of thinking. And that will allow you to be able to influence, certainly, if not fully persuade, a lot of the people that you talk to. I go in depth just again, another plug, but in the first episode of my Change of Minds podcast, I go in depth to all about influence. The whole episode's about changing minds. But it's, again, based upon those ideas, which is the source of the message, who are you, making sure you're credible, trustworthy, and likable, the audience, again, what they want, what they don't want, what's important to them, all that stuff, and then the message, making sure it's logical and emotional as well. Awesome. Um, any last sort of tips, wisdom for the listeners? I think the most important thing is to recognize that you can change the way in which uh, you, you, you think and you can change the way in which you feel. You have that ability to control that. And it's not always necessarily easy. It takes a bit of work. But just like you can like sculpt your body or you can you know train and get yourself healthier and fitter, you can also do the same for your mind. You just got to practice the right kinds of things on a regular basis. And that's what consuming podcasts like this one on, on Charisma, you know, are all about, or my own one, Change Your Minds podcast. It's about training yourself on a regular basis. It's not just that I'm going to learn one trick and then it's going to solve me, you know. You guys know when you train people to become more charismatic and you train people to be more confident, it's not just that they do the training and that's it. They have to work at it. They have to improve it. But when they do, you reap the rewards. And it's an incredible feeling to be able to, to do what you always wanted to do and you believed you possibly could. It's a great feeling once you start to manifest that in your in your life. And, and, and it also allows you to make a real impact on other people, which is which is so important, too. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Oh, and this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Owen and everything he does, his coaching, his books. He's actually moving to New York. So uh, so he'll be out here soon building his business. Uh, we're going to put some links on the Craft Christmas website within the description of this podcast so that you can learn about him more easily. Thank you so much again for talking with me. Thanks, my pleasure, a really great time. Have a, have a great one. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.